following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Revelation. This is the final message in this series on Revelation. So you can tell the rest of the congregation to come back next week. It's going to be safe. They can come out of hiding and uh, we'll be doing something else. Although you never know when the beast might rear its ugly head. But uh, this is the last message in, a tw- in the longest series we've ever preached. I've ever preached in this, in this church or that has ever been preached. Uh, and it's uh, been 27 messages. We've covered a lot of ground. Um, I hope that in some way this has helped to lift some of the fog, maybe, that's been around um, this book. Um, but maybe not too much. We want to leave some mystery in Revelation. We don't want it just to, uh, we don't want to have the sense that we've got everything all figured out. There's so much mystery uh, in this book, but I hope that in some way it's not quite as obscure or bizarre, uh, and especially that it's not quite as terrifying as maybe some of you thought that it was. Um, hopefully, some light has been shed on it, and we've brought this series in at least a month before the world's going to end on December the 21st, according to the Mayan calendar. So that's hopeful, isn't it? Although, as we learned last week, the end of the world may not actually be the end of the world, maybe the renewal of the world. So, you know, that theory might be out of whack anyway. Who knows? But this morning, we'll wrap it up with Revelation 22, uh, reading from verse 6 through to the end. The angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God who inspires the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Look, I am coming soon. Blessed are those who keep the words of the prophecy in this scroll. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said to me, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your fellow prophets and with all who keep the words of this scroll. Worship God. Then he told me, do not seal up the words of this prophecy of this scroll because the time is near. Let those who, can, who do wrong continue to do wrong. Let those who are vile continue to be vile. Let those who are right continue to do right. And let those who are holy continue to be holy. Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me. And I will give to everyone according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to eat of the tree of life and may go out through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let those who hear say, come. Let all those who are thirsty come. And let all who wish take the free gift of the water of life. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of the scroll. If any one of you adds anything to them, God will add to you the plagues described in the scroll. And if any one of you takes words away from the scroll of prophecy, God will take away from you your share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in the scroll. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. 
the grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. Well, I thought perhaps as we encounter this final chapter in the book of Revelation, we might return to a story that I told right at the beginning of the whole series, a story that I told in the first week of the series, in fact, about Claudia. Remember Claudia? This fictitious woman who uh, I described as one of the type of people that John was writing to, the type of people that made up the original audience that Revelation was written into in this province of Asia in the Mediterranean world of the first century. And we talked about Claudia uh, being a textile manufacturer living in the city of Pergamum, one of the cities that Revelation was written to, uh, and her fabrics that she made were used for the garments of the high priests who facilitated the worship of the emperor. And Claudia's family owned these farms, which bred cattle that were used for animal sacrifices for people to worship the emperor. And she sang in a choir that performed at the games, the, the biennial games in Pergamum. Songs to Caesar as a god, son of a god, the bringer of the gospel, the bearer of peace. That was Claudia's life. And the images of the emperor and the rhetoric of the empire was so utterly pervasive for her in her world as they were for everybody in the first century. Wherever she went, she was surrounded by symbols of the empire and rituals of the empire and sacrifices of the empire, and stories of the empire, all of which culminated in the great big story called the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, the story about how Rome and Caesar had brought peace to the world, and in response, the inhabitants of the empire should give worship and veneration and homage back to Caesar and orientate their lives around him. That was the big story of the culture in which these churches existed, And that is the big story that Revelation dismantles, breaks open, and contrasts with the great story of God upon the throne and the story of God who is making all things new through His appointed King, Jesus Christ. So it's worth asking, I think, right at the end of the series, how would Claudia have heard all this? What would she have made of this scroll, this letter? What would she have made of this prophecy? Because that's what Revelation is, isn't it? Among other things, it's a prophecy. But what would that have meant for Claudia and her friends and family reading the words of this prophecy? There's a really big clue here in chapter 22 and verse 10. Have a look at it. The angel says to John, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of the scroll because the time is near. There's a really interesting connection here between Revelation and the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, another major prophetic book in the Bible, in the Old Testament. Several times in the book of Daniel, as Daniel is receiving these visions, God says to him, seal up the words of this prophecy. Exactly the opposite of what John's told. In Daniel 8, for example, there's three times this happens, but in Daniel 8 verse 26, God says, the vision of the evenings and mornings that has been given you is true, but seal up the vision for it concerns the distant future. So the events that Daniel has received concerned events that extended out from his own day about 500 years, right down to the coming of Jesus in the first century within the empire of Rome. So Daniel was looking ahead. It was relevant to his day as well. But he was looking ahead to this empire that would come within which God would establish his own kingdom through the birth of the Messiah, a kingdom that would eventually rule over all kingdoms. And because Daniel is talking about events that we're still half a millennium away, he's told to seal it up. Seal it up in the sense that it's not going to be fulfilled yet, Daniel. Seal it up in the sense that you can't have full understanding of this yet, Daniel. Seal it up in the sense that the events that you're given 
The vision you're given has not yet come to fruition, so seal it up. Now, isn't it interesting? You get to Revelation 22, and John is told precisely the opposite. The angel says to John, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this scroll, because the time is near. Literally, the time is at hand. The time is nigh. The time is ready. Same phrase that Jesus used when he talked about the kingdom of heaven is near. Daniel was told to seal it up. John's told, do not seal it because the time is near. In other words, John's not given a vision about the distant future. John's given a vision about events that are near. And he's told not to seal it up because these events point to the one who has already come. Jesus of Nazareth. His life, his death, his resurrection is the center of the prophecy of Revelation. So in a sense, Daniel is pointing forward to Jesus and Revelation is pointing backwards to Jesus as well as on to the new creation. But even when Revelation gives us these glimpses into the future, new creation and God's coming judgment, it's all based on the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, which had happened in Claudia's day. It had happened in John's day. So it's an unsealed prophecy concerning events near to the time it was written. I think that would have given Claudia profound confidence as she read this prophecy, that it's not about this far-off, distant chronology of events in the distant future. It's about stuff near to her day. It's an unsealed prophecy. You can understand it now, Claudia. It's revealed. Jesus has opened the scroll. We saw that in Revelation 5. He's broken open the words of this prophecy. It's no longer hidden. It's no longer shrouded in mystery. The Messiah has come. He has established his kingdom. And Jesus is the center of all biblical prophecy, Old Testament and new. It all points to him. That's why if you focus on the first three words of this book, the revelation of Jesus Christ, you can't go too far wrong. Not the revelation of the end times, not the revelation of distant events, the revelation of Jesus Christ, the apocalypsis of Jesus Christ. It's an unveiling of who Jesus is. That's how we ought to think about this book. It is fundamentally about the Lamb who is upon the throne. It's all about Jesus. It's from Jesus, and it's for the glory of Jesus and his church. So I think this would have spoken to the relevance this all has for Claudia in the empire of Rome in which she lived as well as for us, of course, in our own day. And there's three things here in this final chapter that I think would have encouraged Claudia, would have been a final exhortation for her, and they are to us as well. And fittingly, these three things, these three words, if you like, in this final chapter, revolve around the three persons of the Trinity. There's a word here about the Father, there's a word about Jesus the Son, and there's a word about the Holy Spirit. All of them have been present in Revelation in different ways. And now here at the end, these three threads are woven together, three major themes in Revelation. Firstly, a word about God the Father. John, in verse 8, mentions for a second time this embarrassing incident. He's done this twice now, where he's mistaken, where he's mistakenly fallen down and worshipped an angel instead of God. He's so overwhelmed by what he's seen, in verse 8, he falls down to worship at the feet of the angel. And the angel says to John, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and with your fellow prophets and with all who keep the words of the scroll. Worship God. Those two words, worship God, really a summary of the whole message of Revelation, aren't they? Worship God. Who is worthy of our worship? That's the question Revelation's answering. Who is worthy? Because in Claudia's day, for Claudia, she's carrying around in her pocket coins that depict the Caesar's son as a god. And she's offering animals 
to be sold as sacrifices for the worship of the emperor, who was called God. So even though this is a simple commandment for Claudia, it wasn't straightforward. It wasn't easy. Revelation is a call for us to give our allegiance to God alone and absolutely refuse to fall down and worship any other created being, person, or thing. I think when Claudia heard the story of John falling down and worshiping the angel, she probably would have connected it to some of the practices of emperor worship, where people fell down and worshiped those things and people that were created rather than the creator God. Revelation calls us away from false worship. It calls us to that one of the central images in the whole book is the image of God upon the throne in the heavenly throne room. You remember this? Chapter 4, supremely, but several times in the book, we've come back to the heavenly throne room, back to this picture. Revelation wants us to spend time in the heavenly throne room because there we see what a rightly ordered world looks like. We see what it looks like now in heaven and what it will be, will be one day on earth. God on the throne, all creation Falling down in worship, giving glory and power and honor and might and strength and worship and devotion and adoration to the one upon the throne, crying out, holy, holy, holy. Revelation calls us to fix our eyes on that vision of God upon the throne that we might worship him and him alone. Now, you and I are not in any danger, probably, of making these same kinds of idols that people used for emperor worship maybe engaging in these overt practices. But we are just as much in danger of ascribing false worship to all kinds of things and people in our lives because worship is fundamentally connected to security. Once we start taking our eyes off that throne, we feel that we are alone in the world and that this universe is fundamentally an insecure place. We get nervous. We get anxious. We feel like history is out of control, our lives are out of control, our world is out of control. That's what happens when you take your eyes off the throne. And then we need to find something, someone, some other way of filling the void in our life and creating security so we'll no longer fear and we'll feel comfortable and safe again. A lot of the time we do that with money. We do that with finance. We have to get to this particular financial goal in a few years' time so that we can then get there in 10 years. So then in 20 years we'll be there. And what starts as healthy financial management ends up in worship. It ends up in idolatry. It ends up in obsession, compulsion. I would say even addiction. Why? Because our worship of money is not driven by greed. It's driven by fear. It's driven by fear that there's no one else on the throne. And so it's going to have to be me. And it's going to have to be my stuff. And it's going to have to be my money. We worship other things, we worship other people out of fear and out of insecurity. That's why people worshipped idols, to give them something else to base the security in their life upon, to get us out of that fear narrative, that fear mode. Revelation calls us back to the heavenly throne room. It calls us back to this posture of joining in with all creation and looking towards God the Father who sits upon the throne. Revelation reminds us that there is one sitting on the throne of the universe. And more than that, he has declared to us through Jesus that he is for us and not against us. He has declared that he is good and that he has made friends of us and not enemies. And if the one on the throne is for us and not against us, what do we have to worry about? What do we have to run after other things about? What do we have to fall down and false worship about? We have one who is worthy of worship. And we need to make sure, friends, that we never allow ourselves to fall down before any other thing, any other person, any other created being, 
Not in Claudia's day, not in our own day. No other person is worthy of our worship. No other group, no other community, no other nation, no other object, no other asset, nothing is worthy of our worship and our allegiance except the one God alone who is on the throne, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who demands our true allegiance and revelation calls for it. Our worship and our devotion and our allegiance to the God who is on the world's throne. So spend time in the heavenly throne room. Spend time orientating yourself with that perspective. That's what breathes security into our lives. That's what leads us away from false worship towards true and rightful worship. And then chapter 22 contains a word about Jesus the Son. We're called to look towards the Father on the throne and we're called to follow the Lamb. Three times in this chapter, Jesus speaks. Three times he says the same phrase, Look, I am coming soon. Jesus gives us this imminent perspective with which to live. This perspective that he could come at any minute. He could come at any moment. That his coming, his return is always, always imminent. And we are to live with that expectation, to live with that anticipation that it could be now. It could be now. It could be tonight. It could be tomorrow morning. Jesus could come. Everything that has been done has been done. Everything that needs to be done has been done. Jesus could return any time. And he calls us in view of that imminent return to, to assume a certain posture in our lives as we await and expect his return. He says in verse 14, Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. We've come across this image of washing the robes before in chapter 7. We saw the great multitude, all people, all tribes, all nations, who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. It's the idea of being cleansed by Christ from sin, from brokenness, from woundedness, and set free in the presence of God to enjoy life with Him. Blessed are those who have received that forgiveness. Blessed are those who enjoy that life. Blessed are those who are ushered into the new creation, whose, whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. But there's more to this picture, I think, because the word wash is in the present tense. It indicates a continuing, ongoing action. Blessed are those who continually wash their robes. Now, I don't think the idea is that we're continually saved over and over again. Jesus sacrifice was sufficient once for all but the idea is that our lives in the present are to continually conform to Jesus that his death on our behalf is not just the means of our salvation it's the model of our sanctification it's the model of our lives in the present that his blood is to continue to mark the way that we live and the posture that we assume in this life it's the posture that we've called numerous times in this series lamb power and it's a description firstly of who jesus is lamb power the lamb upon the throne that second central image in revelation the lamb slain but standing the lamb who has all power who has the horns representing total and complete power he's been given all authority but how does he use his power to give his life away how does he use his power to become slain how does he use his power to lay his life down for the benefit and the blessing of others, namely us? 
Jesus uses his power to demonstrate radical, self-giving love, self-lowering, self-condescending love. That's the pattern of Jesus, and it takes us to the heart of who God is. He is the God of self-giving love. And now Jesus the Lamb calls us not only to be saved by him and, and wash our robes once, he calls us to follow him, to follow the Lamb wherever he goes, as Revelation 14 says. That's the invitation to us, follow the Lamb. Follow the Lamb in the way of Lamb power. Following the Lamb by demonstrating and expressing in our lives this ethic of radical, self-giving love on behalf of others. It's not supposed to be just a good Sunday morning idea. It's not supposed to be just one of those theories that you talk about, Lamb power. It's supposed to be practical in the reality of our lives. It was intended to be practical for Claudia and those who first heard it. Shunning the way of Rome power, the way of violence, manipulation, bullying, bullying, coercion, and force in favor of the way of the cross, the way of lamb power, the way of self-giving love. It's the same posture that we are called to express in our lives, in ordinary, everyday conversations, as well as in the greatest issues facing our world today. You think about the violence that's been going on these past couple of weeks in Gaza between Israel and Palestine. What does lamb power look like in the midst of that situation? Is this just a nice theory for church, or is this actually something that can work in the midst of hostility and violence? There's an organization based in Jerusalem called Musalaha. It's based out of a Christian teaching and perspective on the life of Jesus that works towards reconciliation between Palestinians and Israelis. It works towards bridge building between the two groups, mutual understanding between the two groups, the sharing of lives, the sharing of stories, non-violent solutions, and Christian-based peacekeeping. And Musalaha facilitates dialogue between Israelis and Palestinians. They can literally send messages to each other through this organization, especially in times when it's difficult, like it has been in the past couple of weeks, to get communication going. And I read just this week a couple of messages that have been sent from either side, from participants in this organization, Musalaha. Let me just read them to you. One from an Israeli, one from a Palestinian. This is Deborah Holtz, an Israeli. Brothers and sisters in Jesus, in this time of trials and tribulations, let us not lose sight of what Jesus came to earth to teach us, and that is love. The greatest power that conquers all. Only God's love can teach us how to love and forgive our enemies. And this from Salim and Forrest, a Palestinian. I'm sending this message over the walls with no rockets attached. Don't you love that? To tell you that I pray for you and for all the people in Israel and for your leaders as well and the same for mine. Let's all step out for the light that we have needs to shine in these dark moments. Friends, that's lamb power. That's a demonstration of something different to violence, hostility and aggravation. And I tell you, it's very troubling to me when I hear of Christians so quickly taking sides on both sides and justifying violence, justifying hostility, justifying aggression. That is not the way of the cross. That is not the way of Jesus who said, love your enemies. Friends, we are called to the way of lamb power. We are called to the way of reconciliation. And the voices of Christians in this dispute should be voices that promote exactly what Musalaha is doing. Voices of reconciliation and mutual understanding and bridge building. That's the way of our Savior Jesus. God doesn't take sides. God's a God of peace and we are called to be peacemakers and peacekeepers. Following in the way of the Messiah Jesus. Lamb power is desperately needed in our world, friends. 
and it's desperately needed in our own lives too. Ordinary ways, everyday conversations where we're putting the other ahead of ourselves, loving our enemies, praying for those who persecute us, seeking to bless rather than to harm. We're called to follow the Lamb. And finally, there's a word in Revelation 22 about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has really been a, a hidden actor in Revelation. Not as prominent, perhaps, as God the Father and Jesus the Son, but if you think right back to chapter 1, when John talks about how he got this vision of Revelation, he says, on the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit. The entire content of Revelation was delivered to John because he was in a posture of being attentive to the voice of the Spirit. In every single one of the seven letters to the churches, the line is included, let those who have ears to hear, hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And around the throne of God, we see not only the one who is on the throne, the Father, not only the one who is before the throne, the Lamb, we see the one who is around the throne, the sevenfold Spirit, the perfect Spirit, the one who goes from the throne out into the earth, carrying forth new creation. The Spirit has a real role to play. And right here at the end of the book, the Spirit crops up again, has almost the final word. Look at verse 17. The Spirit and the bride say, come. The Spirit joins voices with the bride of Christ, the church, people of the Lamb, and cries, come. Come, Lord Jesus. Come and make all things new. The Spirit is saying, come. The Spirit within us is always crying out, come, Lord Jesus. The Spirit is longing for new creation. The Spirit within us is always lurching forward out of our chests towards new creation, towards renewal, towards that great future that God has in store for those who love Him. Because that's where the Spirit comes from, from God's future, to give us a taste of it in the present, to give us a foretaste and a down payment of what is yet to come. The Spirit burns with new creation in our hearts and joins with our voices to say, Come, Lord Jesus, creating in us that longing, that anticipation for Jesus to return. But the Spirit doesn't just say, With us, come. The Spirit also says to us, Come. Come to the waters. Come and take the free gift of the water of life. The Spirit turns towards us now and says, now you come. Come to Jesus. Come to life. The Spirit invites us to come into the love and the grace and the fellowship of Jesus Christ. This is not just an invitation for non-Christians. It's not just about getting saved. This is for every single one of us. The Spirit is inviting us to come. You may be in a spiritual desert you may be in an incredibly dry place spiritually with God. You might feel a million miles from His presence and from any sort of connectedness and you've learned how to play the game and you've learned how to sing the songs and to come to church and put on the show. But honestly, if you're honest with your own soul, you're so far away from God and you're so parched. It's so dry. And you're wondering whether this is all that there is because as you look back over your life the past few years, nothing's, nothing's changed. Your growth is just stagnant. Your relationship with God is just plateaued. There's no real life there. And to you this morning, the Spirit of God is saying, come. Come to the waters. 
Come and take the free gift of the water of life. Come and be refreshed by the presence and the grace and the sheer delight of Jesus. And God the Father singing over your life just how much he loves you. Come and drink from that water of life again in the midst of the desert that you're in. Allow Jesus to renew your faith, build into you new strength, empower you again by the Holy Spirit, stand you on your feet and set you forward on a new journey of faith and discovery in him. Jesus longs to make us whole. He longs to make us new. If you're in that place, if you're in that desert, the Spirit is calling to you. He's saying, come, come and take the free gift of the water of life. Come again to the cross and be renewed. You may be carrying wounds and scars from your past that have never healed. Stuff people have done to you, wounds that have been inflicted upon you, the difficulties of the past, and they're not going away. You just carry them around like a ball and chain and you are defined by them now. And to you, the Spirit this morning is saying, come. Come and receive healing. You can't just escape your past. You can't just wrench it out of your life, but you can begin a journey of freedom. You can begin a journey of renewal. You can begin to allow Jesus to bind up those wounds and pour that healing salve on them and bandage them up. And carry you forward in his arms. You can begin that journey of freedom today. Begin to draw around yourself the help that you need from others. And begin to be renewed by Jesus. And given hope that the future can be different to the past. That greater possibilities lie ahead. Because the new creation is still ahead of us. You may be mired down in a particular sin in your life. There's some temptation that's got a hold of you. There's some habit, there's some addiction, there's some pattern in your life and you're just tangled in it. You feel powerless against it. It's defining who you are. It's like just going back to the mud time and time and time. Much as you want to be free of it, you cannot get away from it. You feel so bound up in chains by it and to you this morning, the Spirit of God is saying, come. Come and find freedom. Come and find holiness. Come and find purity. Come and find freedom from the things that contaminate our lives, our bodies and our spirit. Let's practice the way of the Lamb. Let's practice the way of obedience. Come and find freedom. Come and receive again the power of the Holy Spirit to put to death the things in our life that are the works of our old self, the works of our old identity, the works of the old creation. Let's take hold of the power of the same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. And appropriate that in our lives as God makes us new. Same power that raised Jesus from the dead can work in your life to set you free from whatever it is that's got you in chains this morning. The evil one wants to come and convince you that you have no hope, that the, the future will always be what it is now. There's nothing better than what you're experiencing right now, but the gospel offers you hope. The spirit of God within you is whispering, come. And that's the voice to listen to. The voice calling you forward and calling you on to something greater and more hopeful than what you're currently experiencing. And if you don't know Jesus, and you've never tasted the water of life, the Spirit of God is saying to you this morning, come. Come and take the free gift of the water of life, who is a person, Jesus of Nazareth. The free gift that he offers you is the death of his own self on the cross. And it cost him everything, but he offers it freely to you without condition, without reserve, if you would come and fall into the Father's embrace 
That's what God asks of us, to open ourselves up, open our lives up to the embrace and the love of the Father. Come and receive the forgiveness from your past and present and future. Come and be a new creation, made new, written into the story of God and made into an agent of new creation as the story rolls forward towards its glorious conclusion. If you don't know Jesus this morning, the Spirit of God is inviting you to come and be made new, just as God is making all things new through Jesus. So as we draw this long journey to a close, I pray that these three images that have been so central in this book will be seared onto our hearts and our minds. May we always look towards the throne, the one who is on the throne. May he be alone, the center and the object of our worship and our allegiance. And may we follow the Lamb, practicing the way of lamb power in the most ordinary and minute of conversations and interactions and details of our lives. And may we listen to the Spirit, that still small voice that says, Come, come Lord Jesus, and says to our own hearts, Come to the waters, come to life, come awake, come to resurrection in the midst of the empires and allegiances and powers of our world, may we center ourselves upon Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for his glory. May God bless his word and may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with God's people. Let's pray. Let's just take a moment in the quietness of this time to listen to what the Spirit is saying to our church, to listen to what the Spirit of God is saying in our own hearts. What has he been teaching you? What has he been showing you? What's the image among all the images in Revelation? What is the image that stands out, that grips your heart? What is the image God's calling you back to and pressing on your heart today? Is it the image of the throne? Is it the image of the Lamb? Is it the image of the sevenfold Spirit of God saying, come? What is the Holy Spirit calling you to come towards this morning? What's he calling you to come away from? What's he calling you to come out of? And what is the life that the Spirit of God is calling you to come into? What does that freedom look like? What does that hope look like? God, we thank you that you are the author and the giver of life. We look to you, Father, the one upon the throne. We look to you, Jesus, the lamb before the throne. We look to you, Spirit of God, the one around the throne. Come and make us new. Come and make all things new. And lead us to the waters, to the water of life. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.